Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. In today's show, Roshin Inga speaks to the Irish-Nigerian journalist, author and academic Emma Dabbery about her book, Don't Touch My Hair, a highly charged history of black people's hair. But before we get started, I just wanted to give a mention to our Green and Black's competition. Fancy getting your hands on a luxurious chocolate hamper from Green and Black's? Of course you do. The Irish Times has teamed up with Green and Blacks to give our listeners a chance to win a beautiful hamper filled with delicious products from their new velvet range, ideal for those indulgent moments. The velvet edition of chocolate bars offer a variety of signature flavours for all tastes in a smooth velvety finish. Dark chocolate, but not as you know it. The velvet fruit pouches offer a completely new taste in chocolate, a luxurious melange of fruit and dark chocolate in two tempting flavours. Carefully crafted by expert taste specialists, Green and Blacks invites you to unwind and savour every bite while bringing your taste buds on a heavenly journey. Escape the ordinary with Green and Blacks. To begin with a chance of winning one of those delicious hampers, go to irishtimes.com slash greenandblacks. Now, in Emma Dabbery's first book, The Personal Becomes Political, Don't Touch My Hair is about the history of black people's hair, and for her, this story begins with an upbringing in Ireland where her hair was a, quote, constant source of deep, deep shame. Emma lives in London now, but was in Dublin for the Dorky Books Festival last weekend and came into the women's podcast studio while she was here. Here she is speaking to Roisin Engel. Emma, thank you very much for coming in. There's a brilliant line at the back of your book which says... Emma's hair has been disappointing people since birth. And I think that's a great place to start. So explain that a little bit for people who might not understand. Yeah. um, So, yeah, I guess disappointment um, and yeah, disappointment would be kind of like an early and enduring, not up until this point, of course, but emotion that um, kind of my hair seems to provoke and elicit in others and also in myself um probably like from as early as I can remember through to my through to my 20s throughout my 20s and um when I make that kind of flippant comment it's in relation to lots of different things so first of all it's in relation to my own kind of um attitude towards my hair but it's also in reference to the fact that I'm mixed and so the world of black hair is very complex and is guided by a lot of kind of like rules and hierarchies that kind of people that aren't involved in that world. I would, have to say, would, I didn't have a clue until I read your book. Yeah. It was very <laughs> eye-opening. So there's huge um, 
there's huge attention around what texture of Afro hair that you have. And people might be familiar with that phrase, good hair. Um, I think Beyonce recently popularized it, but it's something that far... Becky with the good hair. Becky with the good hair, yeah. Something that far predates uh, Beyonce. Um, But yeah, good hair isn't something that's usually ever applied actually to white people. Good hair is usually in relation to um, or in description of black people of African descent who have a hair texture that is still black hair, but it's closer to like European norms and beauty standards. And when you're mixed, there's this expectation and idea that you're going to have quote unquote good hair, which is like kind of like looser curls that that grow down. And my hair is very much favored the African side of my heritage. So people, black people would be um, surprised by the texture of my hair, especially growing up in America, where hair te- in Black America, where hair texture was like a really big so deal. So the disappointment is like, oh God, you're she's mixed. She's got a white mother. You would have thought she'd have good hair. Exactly, and that's something that comes more from the Black community because I don't think right, like white yeah. people are no, we really wouldn't, th- no. even like thinking about that. But I spent the first few years of my life in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, um, and. That's like a that's that's like a really big deal there, as is um like colorism, the kind of like privileging of lighter skinned black people. So my mum said like she'd be pushing me in the stroller and people would be like, Oh my god, what a beautiful child. And by beautiful, really, they just meant like a very, very light skinned black child. Okay. And then they'd be like, Let's see her hair, and they'd be like really excited. I'd be wearing like a sunbonnet, and she said they'd like really like with great expectation peek underneath, expecting to see these like glossy curls and then just see these tight naps as they're called um and she said kind of yeah disappointment would quickly replace that so before you even started becoming disappointed with your hair other people the world or certainly the community you're in your early uh life they were disappointed too yeah i was letting them down (laughs) (laughs) well you came to ireland then and Mm -hmm. uh those kind of issues probably didn't factor because good hair bad hair wasn't really (laughs) a thing yeah, yeah but yeah. you face lots of other stuff I mean I was really struck by one uh, document you found from the Department of Education where they were talking about uh, young girls of colour um, which there weren't very many I imagine in school in mm-hmm. Ireland at that time and they actually the quote that they said was that they were hot tempered and difficult to control yeah. I mean I just I actually had to read it again going on you know you're an academic so you've done all your research and, th- and there was also obviously boys of colour in schools as well but that, that that wasn't described to them but there was this very much this perception in the Department of Education. Yeah so I see that you've got the um, proof of the book yes. <laughs> rather than the, the finished copy. That's a note that was submitted to the Department of Education for a report that they had commissioned okay. and this is the findings of the report. Um, I'm not sure if it says that in the proof but yeah that's what's going on there and I, I find that fascinating because um, it's it does talk about um, black boys as well. I think they refer to them as coloured children. Yeah. But we always have that, um, there's that sense that um, it's black boys um, or mixed race boys who um, kind of suffer heavy, heavier penalisation in schools with the with authority basically but this gives quite a a, a different um kind of example and it shows it says that the boys are present less of a problem because they tend to be popular and get on with their peers i think it's something to that effect whereas the girls they're saying this, this they present a serious problem to irish society and it says because their um chances of marriage are nil oh, yeah. that they should 
leave Ireland as soon as they... To go to places where there's more of their kind, essentially. Yeah, they suggest that they go to uh, uh, UK cities with larger mixed-race populations, actually, because they say they're not well-received by either black or white. Um, So that's That's a nice uh, assessment. You were five when you came here? Yeah. Okay, so tell me about your life when you get very different coming from Atlanta. Do you have memories of... Yeah, I, I, I actually have, I've realised that the clarity with which I recall the very early part of my childhood is actually unusual. Like most people are like, I don't remember being like three or four. But I think with me, it's because, well, one of the reasons is because there was such a dramatic and sudden contrast that I experienced. So I came from like a very like affluent primarily black sunny suburban environment to inner city <laughs> 1980s Dublin I I don't think two further kind of poles really like re- really exist and it was with that with that immediate shift that I became aware of race as well um, I say that the environment I lived in in Atlanta was very black, but I had no awareness of that. It's just now with hindsight I think about that. Um, it was when I came here that I had a crash course in, uh, I can't say it was a crash course in race, but I became aware of the fact that I was black and what that meant. And just to explain, in, in terms of you saying that you're mixed, your father was Nigerian yeah. and your mother was white Irish Trinidadian yeah so I think there's been a few different things reported but um uh my dad is Nigerian but his but my grandfather came to Trinity my Nigerian grandfather was studying in Trinity in the late 40s early 50s so all of my dad's siblings were born in Ireland he actually wasn't but he spent lots of his childhood in Ireland then with my mum her parents are both Irish but her father, my Irish grandfather, was um, worked for the British government in Trinidad. So she was born in Trinidad and lived there till she was 14 or 15. Yeah. So the thing is, I'm kind of technically more Irish than my mum, given that yeah. I was born here <laughs> and she was born in the Caribbean, but because she's white. <laughs> yeah. You'd have a hard time arguing that yeah. to some people, wouldn't you? Yeah. Which is what we'll talk about. But um, So Rialto, uh, you're in school and you d- recount in the book lots of, I mean, I have to say, uh, I just found it very depressing reading and I felt oh, very, no, I mean, I don't, I just, well, I mean, it is depressing and it's just, it's just sad to think, I like, I like to think we've moved on. I know in some ways we haven't, but I do think, um, I know that you've got relations younger than you here and their experience of school and of life, I hope is somewhat better. I'm not saying yeah. it's perfect, yeah, yeah. but you, you were there and you were this anomaly. You were this unusual person. Can you tell us about some of the things I mean there was this it goes from kind of nuns really wanting to be around you because they were in the missions and they saw a person of color and they were like oh bring me back now to my time and so it goes from that to sort of I suppose bullying and and quite uh and race overt racism and ignorance and all those things so what what are the some of the the memories you have of that time yeah so I guess my enduring um memory of it is just feelings being made to feel like intensely different and always being reminded that I didn't really that I didn't really belong and as though my presence here was something that I had to justify and defend um also 
one of the reasons that I wanted to leave, which I did when I finished school, was um, I just wanted to, as you said, at that state, at that time, I was an, an anomaly. And that's what's really interesting about being in Dublin now. Nobody gives me like a second glance just driving in from Dorky this morning and like the amount of, I mean my taxi driver was from I, I'm, he gave me a long yeah. <laughs> tell about where he was from but um, and he was talking about his son being born here and just even looking out the window like the diversity that I see and the, the amount of afros that I saw although it's funny do you know Aziz Ansari the problematic slightly comedian was playing here the other night and he got out on stage and he said I've only been in one I've been at one show in Dublin before and this is even whiter than that one so I suppose it depends where you're coming from 100% as well. like I've I've done a couple of um, events with um, uh, Rennie Ado Lodge, who wrote uh, No Longer Speaking to White People About Race. Oh, yeah. And um, we did one in Belfast and we did one in Dublin. And both times I've kind of made the joke of this is a very black audience because there's been like three <laughs> or four black people in the audience. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, my Irish standards. Yeah. And again, obviously coming from London, you're just like, wow, this seems like super white. No, but it is uh, different. But when you were there, it was, it was you were kind of... Yeah, really... so even, even though it's still like an overwhelmingly white country... Just being black or being non-white is not really enough to provoke silence descending in a room (laughs) or people just kind of staring agog. Um, But that was very much my experience. And I also, um, even though there weren't black people around, there were a lot of, that didn't prevent a lot of ideas about black people existing. So I talk about in the book how a lot of stereotypes and really negative and derogatory ideas about blackness, about Africanness, existed in the country, even though there wasn't really a physical presence yeah. of black people. And I guess that's stuff that was imported from the UK, ideas imported from the UK, from America, from media, from the missionaries, um, and that whole kind of relationship with charity. So people kind of had, these ideas were kind of like percolating, but there wasn't really anybody to like, project them onto so that was kind of I felt like that person and I was the first black person that lots of people met like lots of people have told me I'm the first black person that they ever met um (laughs) the Irish Times women's podcast is brought to you by green and black's velvet edition sumptuously smooth dark chocolate I mean, it just sounds to me like when you describe it like that, that you're not able to actually be Emma. You're not able to just be a little girl, a person growing up. Exactly. You are now a person has all this stuff ascribed to them and then dealing with that. It must be a weird, well, not weird, that was your normality, but I just no, feel like was, how would weird. you become, <laughs> yeah, and how would you become who you're supposed to be because you're actually being told all these other things at the same time. Yeah, and then if I, and I think, what a big difference between now and then is like I didn't have any peers so even though the racism of course still exists but if I was experiencing it now there would be I would have other people around me who were going through similar things um there's different outlets now there's there's way more awareness so even um even if you meet like a lot of resistance and hostility, there's other people you can speak to that will have a frame of reference for what you're talking about and will will be aware of concepts like white privilege, for instance. Um, There was no awareness of any of these ideas. So any kind of, when I was kind of resistant or outspoken 
against anything that I was experiencing, the overriding kind of response I'd get was like, oh, well, you've just got a huge chip on your shoulder. And that came from so many people who really should have been supportive. So it was also like that sense of isolation and feeling like I was going mad almost. So I talk in the book about when I moved to London and started my degree in African studies and I was reading like post-colonial literature and I read Frantz Fanon, who's um, a Martinique and uh, psy- psychiatrist. And he was talking about just the psychological impact of being um, kind of fixed by the white gaze and literally just of somebody staring at you and being like, look, a Negro. And he breaks down like just what that look and what that exchange means. And I think that's probably one of the most validating passages I ever read. I was just like, oh, wow, this experience is being analysed by this like famed post-colonial writer um, and it's being given credence to I'm being this experience I have had repeatedly is having credence given to it yeah. rather than just being dismissed as uh, it completely yeah. makes sense. I mean, it's, it's what I was sort of trying to say. And he obviously says it in much more academic <laughs> language. But yeah, when you're being looked at in a way that everyone else isn't being looked at, of course, yeah. that's going to have an effect. So let's talk about that, because the book is called Don't Touch My Hair. Um and there are some moments. I mean, the first thing is the disappointment in your own self with your hair. So you weren't having it. What I think the word you use is maintained. There's a way of maintaining hair and it's a very lots of ritualistic stuff. And if you've got all that thing, you can actually enjoy your hair and yeah. you know, do what you want. But if you you weren't really having it maintained at home. So not only was it the wrong hair or the bad hair, it was also not being kept up. So there was that. Yeah. Bit. Let's talk about that first, about your own view of yourself t- through your hair when you were a child. Yeah. So, um everybody around me had like looked so different and hair was like I feel like hair was a really like big feature of being a girl and of femininity and all the little girls and you had long hair that was like a really big thing and kind of almost like a defining I guess hair is imbued with so much um with so much power and is so and so much symbolism and um, I think it was the in the kind of um, racialization, like being kind of racialized as a black person. I think the thing that made me like most different to everybody around me was like the huge difference in, in my hair. But I think if my hair could have even, I don't know, I kind of feel like if my hair could have been, if the expertise and the products had been available... Yeah to maintain my hair you know I still wouldn't have wanted to have very African looking braids or I wouldn't have wanted to really have the hairstyles that I wear now that are quite aesthetically black or quite aesthetically African because even that would have been like something to kind of like ridicule or to be yeah. like a you would have wanted to have that straight kind of a, a manageable or yeah you know, looking like everyone else exactly there. exactly yeah. Um, and a lot of um, braided hairstyles, you know, are quite stylized or are quite ornate. Um, and I just wanted, I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted that either. I just wanted like, you know, kind of like, you know, messy. I remember everyone having those like, you know, those strands of yes, hair at the front yes. and like the hair back and like a ponytail yeah. with a scrunchie. I used to like <laughs> fantasize about that. And just the way, you know, the, it, the flicking. <laughs> I got a jerry curl in like... 1991 I think so it was like I don't know if people will know what a jerry curl is but it's um I think maybe the most like well-known like popular culture reference is an old one but if anyone's seen like coming to America um 
there is like there's the king of this like um, jerry curl empire and okay. yeah if you've seen that film you'll know what it is but it's like a it's a perm but it's a curly perm so it gives you that like loose curl but to be maintained it needs to have this curl activator put in it every day to okay. see with the plastic bag over your head and the curl activator is like a really heavy greasy like it's horrible and it leaves this like sticky grey residue on like everything that your oh hair touches um, so anyway I had that done in like 1991 <laughs> but that gave me the ability to like flick so you had so that, that thing you'd fantasized yeah, about when I'd you were have, a kid. like greasy flicks but tell me about other people's attitudes towards your hair other of your peers because there's one really horrible anecdote that you recount in the book when you were on a sleepover mm-hmm. I mean I think we can just you can, if you wouldn't mind saying it's just to give I know there's I don't many mind, others I don't mind saying but that kind of gives a very good insight into the type of thing that was said to you as if it was hilarious yeah so um there was a sleepover at um like you know one of my friend's houses and um that I recount in the book and I remember in the morning the girl whose house it was started screaming and everyone was like and everyone was like oh what is it what is like I everyone was like what's going on and then she was like there's pubes in my bed and um then she's like oh no hang on it's just Emma's hair and everyone's like oh my god Ah, so funny and I was just yeah, I just remembered it. Like, I mean, the, that 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 pubes reference is is one that that happens regularly. I just chose that particular anecdote. I think because it just it was also like the contrast with that particular person's hair, because she had. Um, I was so like covetous and envious of her. She had like really long, thick, like shiny black hair, um, and it was the yeah that kind of ridiculing and that association with something you know that was just kind of like dirty and like um kind of like a depravity and then also the contrast with the hair of my of my peers was upsetting to say the least but that that even something like that happened very recently I actually thankfully as a an older as a as a woman I have more autonomy over who I spend time with um so I remember when I stopped straightening my hair I said to one of my friends I was telling her that I'd stop straightening it and I was just like feel what it what it really feels like because the regrowth is there and she felt it and she's like oh my god it feels like pubes and we didn't speak again um and then I, I wrote an article in the New Statesman and I referenced that story I never said who she was or anything um no, it was after I wrote the article in the New Statesman that we never spoke again. She read it. <laughs> I don't oh, well, think she yeah, was. Yeah. Okay. Well, you shouldn't have said it to me. It's not like I named you. No, that's true. Yeah, I'm exactly. like, if you don't want people to like write horrible things but, about you, know, you this don't goes be to horrible. What, this goes to a really big thing that um, I found very illuminating as someone who really doesn't know much about it. I mean, what, reading your book, it was like that. You know, you realise how much you don't need to know about certain things because they've never affected you, you know. Mm-hmm. And you think you might be quite, oh, yes, I know about race and world and all that. But I actually found your book quite, uh, you know, provocative in that way like bringing it back to me making me think about myself how I really understand the world uh, that sort of black people move through so but you talked about depravity there around black hair and I thought it was very interesting when you're talking about sort of slave times and in America when it was a weapon really so people might just say oh it's just hair why are you making such a big deal (laughs) but actually the way people have spoken about um, black hair you know, for for many, many years and used it to kind of, uh, well, you'll say it better than me, but just in terms of to equate it to animals or some kind of, I think you said it was called wool as opposed to hair. And it was used as a weapon, wasn't it, to try and make it look like black people were less than, were subhuman. Basically, when um, 
you have this period of the transatlantic slave trade and you have the kidnapping of millions of Africans who are brought against their will to the Americas to uh, yeah, fuel modernity and the economies of the Western world. Um, there needs to be a justification for this widespread um, exploitation. So one of the um, justifications was that not that basically um, Africans were, were, were they were doing them a favor really they were bringing them to civilization because they were not only uncivilized but not fully human. Some of the evidence of this lack of humanity was the fact that according to this narrative rather than hair growing from their bodies, our bodies, um, they had wool. So that was more like animals, that was more like livestock, and therefore they should be treated in the same way. So that stigma that exists around black hair actually comes, finds its origins in that process of dehumanization that was very power, that was very um, passionately invested in because the economies of the new world were dependent on it um so it's of far more weight and historical importance and cultural relevance than something that's just very you know superficial and easily dismissed as being like oh well that's just kind of shallow talk about hair and we're still very much in it like which is why you've written the book but I thought you said something very interesting and I had to think about it you obviously know better than me but I did find it quite surprising that you said you don't think Michelle Obama would have become or Barack Obama would have become president if he was married to to someone who um, had natural hair which is you know her hair her black hair in its natural state I just found that very um it really made me think. I mean, is that and that's the case, and we we can accept it in a certain way if she straightens it and relaxes it. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like a hundred percent, I believe that because um, the so in 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 to to varying degrees in different parts of the world, but like particularly in America, Afro hair is still seen as um, unprofessional and also. Oh, no, you know, it's not, this happens in the UK. No, in lots of in lots of parts of the world, it's unprofessional, and it is threatening. If you look at the kind of iconic figures that um, are recognisable for wearing afros, these are people that were judged by America as terrorists. So it's a hairstyle that's associated with not only political activism but political militancy. And in the case of people like Angela Davis and the Black Panthers, with actually with terrorism. So it's seen as very threatening. But far more recently, um, I looked at lots of cases of um, where black children had been excluded from schools in the UK um, for either having Afro hair or for um, wearing, for not straightening their hair. And when you're not straightening it, if it's not in an afro, then you're going to have to wear it in a protective hairstyle. So that's um, like a braided hairstyle, where these, or shaved. But where these hairstyles that we wear, not only for kind of like fashion considerations, but actually because of the the structure of our hair and the way our hair grows, they need to be maintained. The hair needs to be maintained in these hairstyles. Um, 
all of these accounts where the hairstyles were, you know, um, children weren't allowed to go to school with them because they were like, oh, well, these are gang-affiliated hairstyles. So cornrows are gang-affiliated hairstyles. Um, they're non-traditional hairstyles. This is all the language that you see being used. One of the arguments I make, there was a particular case that went to, like, um, went to, like, the high courts in the UK about an exclusion of, like, an 11-year-old boy. And the headmaster of the school was saying that... Um, yeah, this was like a gang-affiliated style and it was like non-traditional. And I'm just like, non-traditional, these hairstyles are so ancient that they can be seen in cave paintings. I don't think you can get more traditional than that. Mm. You mean it's just not a hairstyle that white people use. Um, I mean, he actually lost the court case. But um, this is still something, these school exclusions are something that you still see happening on a really regular occurrence. And just this year in New York, there's been legislation passed, <clears throat> excuse me, for the first time that makes it that makes it illegal to discriminate against black people on the basis of their hair. But that's only one city, and that's only happened as recently as 2019. Uh, so basically, <clears throat> if Michelle Obama had had an afro, she wouldn't have been an acceptable sort of person. no absolutely not they would have been perceived as being like some sort of extremists and there's, there's no way she would have been in the white house yeah and um, beyonce we mentioned her earlier has become very political in, in a way in her music and in how she's presenting she has had a very um you know i suppose non-traditional uh black hairstyle or it was blonde it was very straight and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing she's moved into a bit more of of, of being the words are escaping me but more natural lately do you think she's had to go that way or had to go into that very traditional hairstyle in order to become is her, um, hair, successful? More, is her hair more natural no I meant um, I meant in the past you know the the well, a little. Sometimes you see her with an afro. Sometimes you, she has braids. Yes, yeah, sometimes. Have, like, long, long, Whereas before, you'd braids, only see yeah. her with that very sort of sleek kind of yeah, hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think that was a because this will make me more successful because I have to fit in? Well, I think that's to do with like um, like the natural hair movement, um, which starts in like the mid noughties and it's the first time since like the Black Power period in the nineteen sixties where um, which eventually was like overcome and people went back to straightening their hair but in the mid noughties you see so see the emergence of something called the natural hair movement which is like a starts in america but it has become global where it's just more and more black women um kind of saying re- rejecting the idea that by default they have to have straight hair and that's a community that very much like started online but grew really rapidly became global and you just see more and more women, more and more black women not straightening their hair, having afros, having natural hair. And that started to impact the mainstream. And so you see far more like celebrities and film stars, like leading ladies with natural um, afro or afro hair or like protective styles. And that's not something you would have seen even as recently as five or six years ago. So I think um, Beyonce's movement toward towards like occasionally having like more braided styles and stuff would be yeah definitely like part of that part of that movement going back to you and Ireland and your relationship with John because you left to go to London to study because you wanted to do African studies and that wasn't funnily enough that wasn't available in Ireland (laughs) it's not available that many places in the UK okay fair enough specialist (laughs) subject but had you come to be um pissed off with Ireland to be annoyed with living here to be to being just fed up with having to be seen through that gaze the whole time did you kind of have that angst and tension around this country when you when you left? Yeah, I felt like very like resentful to Ireland and very um 
I had like a lot of anger towards Ireland as well. Um, but it, leaving was was a strange one in that like it was by it was through not living in Ireland that I realized like how Irish I am, like how culturally how Irish <laughs> I am. Sometimes happens. Yeah, well. very much so. And then I being away from it, I re, there there were so many aspects of Irish culture that I that I really missed. But at the same time, I was like, I can't live there because I can't kind of go back to being entirely defined by my race and like being the black girl and that being like the main kind of like descriptive characteristic of me and all that comes with that. Um, So it's been really interesting for me to see like the changes and developments that have happened in Ireland. And I've like massively, it's been a long time since I left in that space of time I've massively like rehabilitated my relationship like with the country and um I have yeah a much a a much healthier a much better relationship like with Ireland now but I I had to leave yeah to get that yeah yeah (laughs) you talk very interestingly about when you get into your teens and when you're still the black girl or whatever but now you're somebody who's maybe oh this people thinking you're very pretty and you know oh you're going to be a musician there's this kind of idea or either a sports person or a musician because you're black kind of thing we we were saying maybe negative things about you but now you're in your teens and maybe we're thinking actually you're quite attractive and oh Oh, you're you know almost I think you say at one point it doesn't matter that you're black because you're pretty so that's good you know yeah yeah, prettiness so, will outweigh the blackness or something. Yeah, so that was something that I had, like, uh, communicated to me um, quite regularly. Um, I even had it, like, like blatantly said, oh, like, you're, it's really, like, it's a really, it's a good thing, like, that you're good looking because you can kind of get away with being black. Um, <laughs> you're lucky you're pretty, you can kind of get away with being black. So I very much felt like prettiness was, um, like, I had to compensate for being black so I had to like you know I couldn't just be me but the fact of being black kind of made me lesser than so there had to be like an overcompensation an overcompensation and because there was so much I guess attention focused on my appearance but also I talk I talk in the book about the kind of um the sexualization of black people in I guess often in the popular imagination for women and also for men as well. And I guess ideas about the perceived licentiousness of of black girls. So often there being like a, an interest in you because of assumptions um, about your behaviour. Um, but then also that coming with, again, with that kind of attitude of that, that kind of stigma or that kind of depravity or that kind of... Um, Oh, you just like girls then talking about you like that you're easy that you're this that and the other black girls are easy that was that was a um that was also a kind of a trope so there was this attention that I, I'm not sure if I talk about it in the book but I've written about it elsewhere so teenage girls are really kind of conditioned to see male attention as this kind of all-important nice. thing um so I was getting that and I mean, like there, I enjoyed that to an extent, <laughs> being a teenage girl. But also, sometimes it was underscored by something that was like a little bit more sinister, and was just like very confusing for me as well. Um, 
And I remember like friends, parents saying things about me and other friends kind of reporting back that such and such mother had said stuff. And there was all this kind of like, I remember like, I wasn't there, but um, a school friend um, assembled a group of my friends and kind of gave them a little lecture on why I was like an inappropriate friend because she was like, oh, things that are like acceptable or like appropriate for Emma (laughs) wouldn't be for you. I never got to the bottom of what those things were. And it was, that one was actually wasn't reported back to me like so gleefully. Like one of my friends is just like, this Realized was really that was weird. But listen, the book is called Don't Touch, Touch My Hair because I should reference, that's a thing that happens to you still. Yeah, Your hair yeah, is beautiful. Yeah. It's Thank okay you. to say that, Thank isn't it? I mean, you have lovely grand. hair. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> but I'm not going to go and touch it because like, you know, I don't touch anybody's hair. But that's mm-hmm. a thing people think they can do. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the title of the book is in reference to um, a very common phenomenon um, that was quite an enduring, like, um, characteristic of my of my childhood, particularly. Um, and as I got older, I came to realise this is something that, like, a lot of black people, who've particularly who've grown up in, like, white environments or who live in very white environments, um, have experienced. And it's, like, this fascination slash sometimes like when I was a kid sort of disgust wonderment sense of like entitlement to your body that seems to um result in just this unsolicited touching of your hair and sometimes people are asking like can I touch it but you're actually in the process of saying no and their hand is still in there. So they're not re- they're not waiting for permission. And I've had a few exchanges where the person's flipped it back on me and because I've said no has been has told me how rude I am. <laughs> and I'm just like, you've actually like a- approached me. Like just it's just it, it it's quite exhausting. And you don't necessarily always want to have these like what can become quite confrontational exchanges with people. And I always think like if it's reversed, I've done this just kind of like for fun, um, gone up to white people. And just been like, oh, my God, like, how did you get your hair like this? Like, it's so weird. Like, it's just the way it just hangs there. Um, And they're horrified and kind of scared and confused. And I'm a woman. Because men do it. White men do it to me as well. So can you imagine if black men were doing this to white women? Yeah. Like, it's just (laughs) when you reverse it. Well, uh, Emma, you've so many successes under your belt. You've got the book. You've um, a PhD. Are you finished? I'm I'm in the process of finishing the PhD this year. You've done um, some great programs, broadcasting and all that. So things are going very, very well for you. But will this be, do you think, your life's work? Is this where you're going to focus yourself um, in terms of race? and all that area because you do say people still find it very uncomfortable listening to black people talking about race and it's interesting because it feels like we've been hearing a lot more but it's still like that isn't it like we as white people probably we feel uncomfortable we don't really want to know the depth of it we don't really (laughs) want to hear how bad it is and that sort of says to me that you need to keep talking about it then yeah so I think that there's um a lot there's there there can be a lot of a lot of resistance and a lot of people that don't want to hear it then there's a lot of people that are also quite open to hearing it and want to know more and um kind of like want to do better and then there's also people that I don't really understand that seem to actually enjoy being told like how this is a minority but kind of enjoy some sort of like self-flagellation this is kind of like a weird liberal thing 
And that really horrifies me. I'm, like, I'm not no, in that bracket. Yeah, I'm just I'm telling not saying, you. I'm not you're in no, it. No, I'm just making sure you're not thinking. <laughs> no, I'm no. enjoying our conversation. Not that much. I'm really not getting that vibe from you. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> but that's a weird one, though, isn't it's it? It's a weird one. That also exists as well. So right. the, the, there's different motive. There's different energies yeah. going on but is this do you think this is the where you're going to focus yourself and, and I, know, I know you have so many different interests yeah and, and well my my PhD is about race as well um and a lot of the programs I've made have been like black like looking at history and looking at like aspects of black history or how black history is a part of British history and broader world histories um it will continue to influence my work but um I also I also teach African studies and um, what I enjoy about that is it's actually like not all about race and I really try to bring lots into the book that isn't just about race but is actually this kind of like excavation of like suppressed and little known aspects of of, Af- of, of African culture um, because I really don't constantly just want to talk about race yeah. and about and about racism. Um, I would actually really also like to write fiction, um, I would definitely bring aspects of everything that I know into that fiction that would inform it. But um, I don't just want, I really don't see myself just like kind of talking about racism specifically. Yeah. And finally, we talked about how different your childhood was to say, you know, younger relations that you have now growing mm-hmm. up in Ireland, but you've got a son as well in mm-hmm. London. I presume his uh, childhood is even more worlds away, and are, are you ha- that must make you happy as a mother to see that he's not maybe going through the, the difficulties you went through. Yeah, he 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 isn't, and um, he's here at the moment. Like he loves coming over to Ireland, and I, I'm always really interested by um, the experiences he has here, which are very far from the ones that I had, which is great to see. I mean, if he was having those experiences, we wouldn't, we wouldn't yeah. come here. But um, yeah, no, that makes me like really happy and like really hopeful. He definitely still has, comes home from school in London and says things about his hair. He also, I guess, has that thing going on of like, I mean, he has like an English accent and he's just like, I'm not really English. (laughs) Um, So like his dad is also like of Irish descent. So like he has that thing of like kind of like, you know, having like Irish parents or having like a lot of Irish ancestry, but like. Still not. Yeah. Yeah. Having like having like an English accent and Mm. being like, oh, but like kind of there's still stuff going on, I guess, with migration and with race these are still like huge issues. So they still impact people's lives. It hasn't all been kind of like miraculously um, solved, but definitely his life is um, a lot less marred by like racism and a sense of exclusion. But it's been really interesting talking to you, Emma, and congratulations on the book, because as I said, I learned a lot. I think I also think, though, it must be great for other people, uh, black people to read your experiences, to feel an affinity with them. But then also for other people who don't have a clue like me to go, oh, wow, that is so interesting. It's sort of reframed a few things that I had thought before. So thanks for that. And good luck. That's amazing for me to hear. Thank you. It resonates. Thank you. It really does. it's fascinating and it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs> and that's it for today. Thanks to Emma Dabbery for speaking to the Women's Podcast and a reminder that her book, Don't Touch My Hair, is available in all good bookshops. Before we go, don't forget to enter our Green and Blacks competition. To be in with a chance of winning a delicious hamper, go to irishtimes.com slash competitions slash green and blacks. 
Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we like a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by Roisin Engel and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.